as we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation to Job chapter 16. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. If you just wave to them they'll, and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And then if you don't own a Bible, then just consider that a gift from the Lord to you tonight and make a good friend of that Bible. <clears throat> What's the old saying? Um, you show me a Bible that's worn out, and I'll show you a Christian who isn't. <laughs> There's a lot of truth there, isn't there? <clears throat> Make a good friend of it. Wear it out. It'll do good things in us. Remember, as we come to Job chapter 16, and if you've kind of joined us here tonight and uh, uh, kind of out of the blue... It would be good to listen to the first couple of Bible studies on the book of Job. I'm not going to backtrack or I'll probably have a rebellion on my hands this evening. We're all quite eager to get through this section of the book of Job. So these people stop talking. And uh, But it would be good to listen to those first couple of Bible studies to know what it is that you're in the middle of. We remember in chapter 15 that Eliphaz <clears throat> was contending on behalf of all of the three so-called comforters of Job that all suffering comes from wickedness. And boy, you just, if you hear that drum beat just one more time, you think you're going to go crazy, but they will not stop beating that drum. And it isn't always uh, true at all. There is suffering that comes from wickedness, but not all suffering comes from wickedness. A lot of suffering that people experience in this world, they experience for righteousness' sake, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus, the Bible says, shall suffer persecution. So they're way off base. It would be bad enough if they presented their opinions as their opinions, but they don't. They are expressing these particular views that they have as speaking for God. And uh, so here is, uh, they're accusing Job of being wicked. Eliphaz laid out all of the inescapable troubles that come upon the wicked. And as we read through it a little bit, in addition to the other chapters, in chapter 15, we saw that basically he's just looking at Job and going down the list of everything in his life and just basically um, accusing him of being wicked, and this is the cause of his suffering. And so Job now replies uh, to this. And Job then, then Job answered and he said, I have heard many such things, miserable comforters are you all. Well, he's getting... We're getting more and more blunt as we go through all of this. Literally, it is comforters of trouble. In other words, he's saying to them, not only have you not given me any comfort, but all you've done since you've been here now is to bring trouble into my life. You've just made uh, things worse. And then he said, shall words of wind have an end or what provokes you that you answer? And so Job seemed amazed that Eliphaz was going to come back and rebuke him for a second time. After all, they'd all taken one shot at him and given him three pretty good body shots in terms of what they said. And then now when Eliphaz speaks again, Job realizes, oh no, there's 
all the potential in the world that each one of them are going to get up and say some more terrible things uh, to me. So he's getting ready uh, for them to uh, line up and uh, hit him once again. He said, I also could speak to you if your soul were in my soul's place. If the position was reversed and I was powerless and and you were powerless and, and your health was fragile and you were at, the, at death's door and I was feeling robust. I still had my family, my reputation. I still had my wealth. I still had all of these things in life. It would be easy for me to speak the way uh, that uh, that you are speaking. And, and he said, if, if the roles were reversed, I could heap up words against you in your moment of of vulnerability and shake my head at you, which tells us that they were not only saying these words, but they were then shaking their heads, which was a Middle Eastern way of kind of scorning, you know, tisk, 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 and uh, adding kind of weight to it. He said, but if our roles were reversed, I would strengthen you with my mouth. So he's telling us what he wanted from them. He wanted to be strengthened spiritually by what they would say, but they weren't doing that. They were doing the world's worst thing, not only telling him that his problems were because of sin, which they were not, but then they were making, they were uh, robbing him of intimacy in his relationship with God by uh, intimating that God was judging him when God was not judging him uh, at all. And And the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. He said, if the roles were reversed, I'd strengthen you, I'd comfort you, and I would uh, relieve you. Interesting thing about that, and it's a funny thing about life, and it's uh, one of the advantages of growing older, and there are very uh, few advantages to growing older, all of them spiritual. None of them physical, by the way. But one of them is, is that as you do get older and you experience more and more of life, um, and and to experience more and more in life is to experience more and more blessing, but it's also to experience uh, more and more difficulty and to experience situations where we've been misunderstood or we've been mistreated in a time where we were down and vulnerable. And, and so one of the things that happens is when those situations happen in our life, the way that the Lord reverses them and he works them together for good is that we do determine in those circumstances that now we have a compassion for where people are in that situation and now we then know how uh, to comfort them. And so sometimes it's the hard way, but sometimes I think really it's the only way that we learn how to minister to others by sometimes experiencing very unsympathetic and, and hard treatment from other people. He said, though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And so essentially he's going to tell them in the next few verses that I'm dying, but I still don't know why God has made me the object of his wrath. So he said, though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? He says, if I speak, it doesn't help. If I remain silent, it doesn't help. But how? But now he that is God, he's worn me out and he's made desolate all of my company. And so he lamented the loss of company, his family, 
his friends, uh, good kind of friends that he had in his life. He says, all I'm, uh, he's longing for sympathetic company, and all he has is these unsympathetic friends. He said, you have shriveled me up. Speaking of his body, he's skin and bones at this point, and it's a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me, and it bears witness to my face. And so he uh, speaks about uh, his physical condition, and he says, he tears me in his wrath, speaking of God, and he's misunderstanding everything, but they've been no help in this. God wasn't doing any of these things, but they set him again on this path. So he's walking down this path that they've encouraged him on. In other words, if God is doing this to me, then, then this is what he's doing. He tears me in his wrath and he hates me. Nothing was further from the truth, but that's what he felt like. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze upon me. And then he said, they gape at me with their mouth. And, and speaking of uh, his enemies, they strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. And so um, since uh, God had kind of, uh, you know, treated him, he's saying, God, since God has felt free to treat me in this way so disrespectfully and so unfairly, that now all of my enemies are emboldened to treat me the same way. Job had a lot of people. Remember, he was the most powerful man in the East before his trial uh, came upon his life. And though he was a godly man, there's nobody who rises to that kind of a position in life who does not have uh, people around him who then become envious. They hope for a downfall. And if he ever were to show any kind of a a sign of weakness or falter any kind of way, they would be very quick to jump in and take advantage of the opportunity. And so apparently there were some people uh, that were doing that. In in verse 10, you hear language that uh, was then used by the psalmist also into the New Testament to speak of uh, Jesus on the cross and the treatment uh, of Jesus by his enemies. And again, this, now this is times what, you know, related to Jesus. Uh, he spoke to people, spoke to the religious leaders of the day, and he said, which of you convinces me or convicts me of sin? Which of you can convict me of a single sin that I've ever committed? And they could not break the silence. And no one can ever break that silence, by the way. That's why you need to make them Lord now, so that when we end up before the judgment seat of the Lord apart from Christ, and he poses that question, the answer will still be silence. And Jesus then broke the silence, and he's the only one that can break the silence to that question. And he says, then why won't you believe in me, put your trust in me? And so here is Jesus. He's popular, all these great crowds around him, And you'd think everyone would be his friend, everyone would be for him. But there's this great group of people that were just waiting for a moment of weakness in order to spew their hatred and their venom and their blasphemies upon him. And and so they did when he hung upon the cross. And Job was just getting a little bit of a taste of that, of what Jesus would bear in, in its fullness Uh, thousands of years later. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he shattered me. And he has taken me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. 
So this is the picture. He's all wrong in terms of what he thinks God is doing here. Nothing is true, but it's true in his mind, but it's still not true. So what he's basically picturing is that he's in uh, like a wrestling ring with Andre the Giant. And Andre the Giant, if you remember him, he's just absolutely, he's just shaking. He's, the images of a, a gigantic wrestler shaking you to pieces. He says, this is what God is doing to me. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. In other words, he has given all, he's put a target on my back and he's supplied arrows to everyone to shoot at me. And so his archers, they surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall to the ground. In other words, they have shot me so thoroughly that my vital organs are falling out of my body. This is poetic language for how, how, how bad his condition was. He said he breaks me with wound upon wound, and then he runs at me like a warrior. So he likened God to this just kind of a ninja that's coming after him all of the time and in, a, you know, the terrible condition that he's in, defenseless condition. He can't protect himself, and he views God that way. And again, he's wrong, uh, but he, this is what he's speaking. He said, I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust. And so he, he is uh, unaware of any kind of secret sin that is going on in his life. And he's, and, and so, but he's still going to God. And God, is there any secret sin in my life? Is there any hypocrisy in my life? And so he has all these marks of mourning going on in his life. He's sewn sackcloth over his skin. He's laid my head in the dust. Throwing dust on yourself was a sign of mourning. My face is flushed from weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death, though no violence is in my hands, and my prayer is pure. I ask God to show me my sin, but I know that I'm pure. And, and this is his cry. And then he says, O earth, do not cover my blood. So now he stops talking to uh, his three comforters and he stops talking uh, to his three friends. And so to him it seems as if his, uh, his three friends, uh, there's certainly there's no use in talking to them at all. And then God, it seems, has gone silent on, silent on him. And, and so uh, he decides he's going to talk to the earth now. And when he says, O earth, do not cover my blood he, and let my crying place, have no resting place. He's basically saying, earth, don't let them bury me in you until my innocence is brought forth. And so he's talking to the earth saying, hey, if, if I die in this condition of being misunderstood about the real cause for this suffering, I want you to spit me right out of the ground. Don't let them bury me until my innocence is established before people. And then he uh, declares, surely even now my witness is in heaven. And he returns to speaking about God now. God knows that I'm innocent. He could testify uh, to my innocence if, um, if he was inclined to do that. And so, um, and my evidence is and my evidence is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. 
Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a neighbor pleads for his neighbor. And so when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. And so he talks about the fact that his condition is hopeless and that he is going to die. Now, when he uh, is praying in verse 21, he prays that there might be someone in heaven who knew of his innocence and then would approach God as his defense attorney. That's what he's longing for, some mediator between man uh, and God. So he's basically asking for what we enjoy as Christians uh, all of the time, and that is an advocate with the Father who is Jesus the righteous. Again, First John chapter 2, it says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate or a defense attorney with the Father. And who is that defense attorney? Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation of the satisfying payment for our sins and not our only, not our, for ours only, but also for the whole world. And so he's longing for a defense attorney to go to God, contend for his innocence in order to convince God to step out and set these three men straight and the whole world straight concerning his innocence of this sin. So that's what he's asking for. He's basically asking for Jesus thousands of years before Jesus uh, came into the world. Now, the fascinating thing about Jesus is that in Jesus, we have more than Job was even asking for. Job was asking for an advocate in heaven to represent him in his innocence. The Bible teaches there in 1 John 2 that we have an advocate, Jesus, who advocates for us in our guilt, That's a different thing when you get a defense attorney that will take your case because you're innocent. Well, that's a wonderful thing. It's a far greater thing and a far more powerful attorney when he has the ability to take your case when you're guilty and then take that case before God Almighty himself and come forth with a satisfying a verdict for you. The only reason that he can do that is because he is the propitiation. His blood has made it possible for him to do that for us. And then in chapter 17, he lays out the case that his, that his situation is hopeless. He's about to die. He says, but he says, basically, I'm about to die and I'm surrounded by mockers, you know, and, and so he says, my spirit is broken. And the idea is, I'm, I'm as good as dead. These people have crushed me. The circumstances, these comforters, my days are extinguished. Not true. Not true at all, as we'll read at the end of the book. The grave is ready for me. Uh-uh-uh. That's just what you're feeling. It's not the reality. He said, are not mockers with me, and does not my eye dwell on their provocation? So he thinks that he's dying. And, of course, I don't know. I suppose that you're like me, but... Uh, barring the rapture, if God takes me home through death to be with him, I certainly don't want mockers at my deathbed. I want to have at my deathbed to just kind of be with me while I'm ushered into heaven. I want to have family there. I want to have friends there. I certainly don't want mockers. And so that's what he's saying here is that I'm about to die, about to go into heaven. I'm on my deathbed and I'm surrounded by a bunch of mockers instead of people to comfort me. He said, now put down a pledge for me 
with yourself. And he's crying out to God, God, would you become a character witness for me? Who is he who will shake hands with me? For you have hidden their heart from understanding, therefore you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children, will fail. But he has made me a byword of the people. And so uh, this is their assessment of him as a hypocrite or as wicked, has emboldened again his enemies and the people uh, to speak uh, poorly of him, to treat him in a disrespectful way. So they figure, wow, if these spiritual men think this of Job and are treating him in this way, then we're free to do that as well. So now he's, he's lost all of his wealth, he's lost his family, he's lost his health, um, he's lost all of these things, and now he's lost even his reputation. Nobody's treating him with respect. And he said, I've become as one in whose face men spit. And uh, if you ever want to get shot dead in the Middle East, just spit on somebody. It is, it is the highest insult to this day in the Middle East. You don't do it. And he's saying, I've become the object of uh, uh, the, the greatest insults people are heaping upon me. My eye has also grown dim, dim because of sorrow, speaking of his weeping, and all my members, his body, are like shadows. He's just so much weight loss. He's like a skeleton. He said, upright men are astonished at this, the way that people were treating Job, and the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. And so, by Job saying, the upright men are are appalled at the way that people are treating Job, he's saying that these three friends of his are not upright men. And yet the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will be stronger still. And verse 9 is just this burst. He goes way down into the depths. That's what happens in trials like this. You go, it just seems like there's not much uh, time spent between the mountaintop and the valley. It's one or the other. And so he is in this terrible uh, pit of despair, and then he has these sudden bursts that occur. And, uh, and, and here he comes forth and just the strength of his conviction related to the fact that he is righteous. He's not going to cave to them. He's not going to be bullied by them and admit wrongdoing in his life that isn't true. And he's convinced that. And, and so he is, he, he is in the course of this argument. Uh, these, you know, arguments like this are either going to kill you or they're going to make you stronger. And so he's listening to their abuse of him, and it's making him even more determined to make a stand at it. It's making him even more convinced of his innocence. But he said, please uh, come back uh, again, all of you. And so he uh, challenged his friends to come back now after he said, listen, I'm more convinced than ever that I'm, my life is clean. But he says, all right, you want to come and take one more shot at me? to try and uh, re-diagnose me properly. Uh, All of you come back and do it, for I shall not find one wise man among you. And so uh, he, he knew that they lacked the wisdom to do that. My days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart, they change the day into night. The light is near, they say, in the face of 
darkness. If I wait for the grave, if I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, uh, you know, the rotting of the body after death in the ground, you are my father into the worm, you are my sister, my mother and my sister, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? And so he felt that corruption and worms were better company than these three and of greater comfort uh, uh, to him. And so um, uh, this is the kind of thing that he's, uh, that he's f- feeling. If he, had, if he was innocent and then he had nothing uh, to repent of, and uh, because he had nothing to repent of, they were saying it was going to mean that he was going to die, and so only death awaited him. Then in chapter 18, Bildad the Shuhite, he then answers as he's listening to Job here, and he begins with uh, the way that they seem to typically do that, with an opening insult, and uh, they thought it was a rebuke, but pretty much an insult. And so he answers and he said, How long till you put an end to words? Job, when are you going to stop talking? Gain understanding and afterward we will speak. We'll talk when you know something. Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? And so they felt that Job uh, was dismissing of their um, intelligence because he had spoken to them and said, because they were contending that um, wickedness is always caused uh, by, or, or uh, catastrophe is always caused by wickedness, this kind of thing. And Job had said, you remember, that go to the animal kingdom. And even within the animal kingdom, if you could talk to the animals, Dr. Doolittle, and uh, they would tell you that even in the animal kingdom, that sometimes the good die young. It's, there's no rhyme or reason uh, to that that way. And, and so he had referred them to the fact that animals knew something that they didn't seem to know. And so he, he's, been, uh, ups, he's upset at that insult. And so uh, he felt that Job felt that they were stupid. He said, you will tear yourself in anger. Shall the earth be broken for you or shall the rock be removed from its place? And so he accuses Job of, of just saying all of these things out of anger. And how could he be the lone um, exception to this rule that they've been laying out? Uh, and, and why could he have such a high opinion of himself that he would believe that? The light of the wicked indeed goes out. And the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp beside him is put out. And so he declares kind of the miserable state of the wicked in the world. And uh, again, as we read it, it looks an awful lot like Job's life that he's describing. So he's saying Job has to be wicked. And so his home is, uh, is desolate, and of course Job's home was, uh, is gone at this point. And the steps of his strength are shortened, and his own counsel casts him down. Uh, the wicked will have be weakened physically, for he is cast into the net by his own feet. He walks into a snare. The net takes him by the heel, and a snare lays hold of him. A noose is hidden for him on the ground, and a trap for him on the road. And so the wicked, they get caught in their own sins. 
Job, you're being caught in your own sins. Tears frighten him on every side, drive him to his feet. And so uh, everything, terror grips the heart of the wicked once their world starts to collapse and his strength is starved and destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin and the firstborn of death devours his limbs. Ah, this is just so bad what these guys are doing. Job is sitting in front of them, and he's basically an open wound from head to toe with these boils. And the only consolation or comfort that he has in it is that he's able to put ashes on them in some way to kind of dry them out and then scrape the pus off with pieces of broken pottery. His skin is all cracked and infected and all of this. And this man is talking about the wicked and, and the skin condition and all of this. I mean, nobody could, could miss the accusation that was being made. He is uprooted from the shelter of his uh, tent, and they parade him before the king of terrors. And the king of terrors refers to death. So he said, basically, at the end of all of it, then the wicked dies. They dwell in his, t- in his tent, who are none of his. Brimstone is scattered on his dwelling. So the houses of the wicked are, are uh, burned and their security is taken away. His roots are dried out below and his branch withers above. The memory of him perishes from the earth and he has no name among the renowned. And so there's the extinction of his name. He is driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. He has neither son nor posterity among his people nor any remaining in his dwellings. Again, this is a very, very cutting remark in light of the fact that Job had lost all ten of his children. It was considered in the ancient world. It was never true, but it was a wrong interpretation of uh, the word of God or the law of Moses. But it was a person or a family, a husband and wife, were considered cursed if they could not have children. And the idea was that the law of Moses had said that as the children of Israel would go into the land, that God would make them fruitful and they would multiply. And so since that was God's promise and his blessing, general promise to the children of Israel, that if an individual couple did not have children, could not have for one reason or another, and there was a fair amount of infertility on the woman's side among the patriarchs until God stepped in miraculously related to it. But that was the idea. They took something from God and they said the implication of this means this. There has to be sin or something wrong in a person's life. So if a couple did not have a a child and specifically did not have a son to continue the family name, super big deal, for a name to go extinct because you did not have a son. So you just keep having children till you had sons could because you didn't want your name to go extinct in the history of the nation of Israel because God might choose your lineage to, to bring the Messiah into the world. And so this is, here he is, he's lost all of his children and, and here is the accusation. <clears throat> excuse me, that with the wicked, the, the, his name will be blotted out. And Job has now lost any means by which his name could continue on into history. <clears throat> excuse me, that will change at the end of the book. But this is his condition at the moment and their accusation. Those in the West are astonished at his day, and those uh, in the East are frightened. In other words, the end of the wicked is so terrible 
uh, Job, that everyone in the they become like a teaching teachable moment or a life lesson for people. The righteous don't live the life of the wicked because this is how you'll end up. And Job, basically, you are one of those examples. That's what God has reduced you to. And surely such are the dwellings of the wicked. And this is the place of him who does not know God. Now, this you, you think, okay, worse, 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 worst. Because the worst thing is done in verse 21, because now he accuses Job of not having a relationship with God. You know, you can rob a person on every level when they are in difficulty in their life. But the one thing that you never want to do is to take their relationship with God from them or to cast doubt on that. And they did it continually, and they repeated it continually, and here they do it, uh, did it uh, once again. And so, Job, this is what the wicked have coming to them. God makes sure that they uh, get this. And by the way, Job, uh, do you know anybody that sounds like this? I mean, it's not, they're not even trying to be careful at this particular point. And then in chapter 19, Job answered and he said, <clears throat> How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? And so he just laments over not only the physical condition of his life, but the emotional pain that their words were bringing into his life. Remember the nursery rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. No greater lie has ever been put to rhyme than that. Isn't it funny? You look back on your life, we're all adults in this room. You look back on your life and, I mean, some of us have been punched and been in fights and been in a lot of physical situations. And when you look back and you say, what are the one, two, three, five most hurtful things that have occurred in life? Um, so often it centers on something that was said and not something necessarily that was done uh, to us uh, violent in nature. Sometimes that's true, but so often it's the power of something that's being said in words. And so he's being crushed now. He says, you're, you're crushing me, breaking my spirit, my emotion, who I am emotionally and mentally with your words. He said, these ten times you have reproached me. And the ten times is a kind of an, uh, a Hebrew way of saying over and over again. You remember when uh, Jacob uh, spoke to Laban, his father-in-law, who was ripping him off. He said, these ten times you have changed my wages. It wasn't that he'd done it ten times. It was that he'd done it over and over and over and over again, kind of a countless. These ten times you've reproached me, and you are not ashamed that you have wronged me. So he rebukes them for um, feeling free to meet these uh, false charges out against him. And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. In other words, if I am guilty of sin, then that's between God and me. You need to stay out of it. If indeed you exalt yourself against me. Now, this is fascinating where he goes now, beginning in, in verse 5. Because he, he's basically saying to them, if what you say is true, that God is judging me for secret sin, then the implication of that is that God has wronged me because I am not a hypocrite 
and I am not a secret sinner. So he begins to rebuke them with the implications of what they're saying, how they're representing God. It's a big deal to represent God in the world. It's a big deal to speak for God. Because if we speak for God, people are free to listen to what a person is saying. This is what God is doing. This is what God is saying. And they're free to come to conclusions about God on the basis of how he's being represented. And so that's what Job is saying to them. You're saying all of these things freely about God. But what you're saying has implications. You are painting a picture of a God that no one would want to know, that no one would want to serve. And I mean, he's really trying to get their attention. It's a big deal what you guys are doing. You're not just doing harm to me. You're doing harm to the reputation of God. And so if these things are true that you have said against me, if indeed you exalt yourself against me and plead my disgrace against me, then here's the implications of it. Know that God has wronged me and he has surrounded me with his net. He's trapped me like an animal. If, if God only treats the wicked this way, then I'm telling you that he's misjudged me and mistreated me. And he gets, he's just getting right up in their face on this. He says, again, helping them to realize the implications of what they're saying. He said, if I cry out concerning wrong, I'm not heard. You're saying that God doesn't listen. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. You're indicating that God doesn't care about justice. It's no concern to him. He's fenced up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness in my uh, in my paths. Uh, he has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. God has put me in a prison of my circumstances. This is a cruel God that you're describing, and and He has unjustly removed me from a position of high esteem in the community. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. He, he is demolishing me like a building. My hope, he is uprooted like a tree. In other words, an uprooted tree is a tree that's hopeless. He has also kindled his wrath against me. He counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and they build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. God is at war with me. It's interesting if you go to, ever go to Israel and you go to Masada, one of the things that you see is you see these siege ramps that were put against ancient cities where uh, these walled cities, you'd have to build kind of a ramp that you could then, then roll these war machines up against to break down the wall and then break into the city. And here is Job saying they're building, it, God is building this gigantic siege mound <laughs> to overthrow a tent. It's like overkill. Who am I? It's like killing a mosquito with a shotgun. He said, he has removed my brothers far from me. In other words, he's 
Uh, he scattered my friends and my family members, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. The, if this is all God, this is what God has done to me. And those who dwell in my house and my maidservants, those that were servants to me at one time, they now count me as a stranger. They ignore, they pretend that they don't even know me, and I'm an alien in their sight. I call to my servant, who was formerly my servant, but he gives me no answer. There's no respect. I beg him with my mouth, but still no respect. My breath is offensive to my wife. Now, if that's your life verse, I don't want to do any damage to it. This is talking about the bad breath that's come into his life, not because of a fabulous Italian dinner where the garlic has been put out just right in gobs and mountains upon the pasta. But it's talking about the bad breath that so often comes with disease. And I am repulsive to the children of my own body. And he's speaking rhetorically. If my children were still alive, I would be repulsive to them. Even young children, they despise me. I arise and they speak against me. I'm disrespected and humiliated by the lowest, uh, the lowest positions of, in terms of authority and in the society. All of my friends, they abhor me. And those whom I love have turned against me. He just feels completely abandoned by his friends. And he was. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. So he's skin and bones. Now here's a phrase where we talk about somebody escaping by the skin of their teeth. You say, where'd that phrase come from? Come from the book of Job. How thick is the skin on your teeth? It's not very thick, is it? So basically he's saying that there's no distance at all between me and, and death. And, and then he says, have pity on me. Have pity on me, O oh, you, my friends. He just begins to plead with them for some pity. For the hand of God has struck me, and why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? And so when he says, the hand of God has struck me, I think there's a bit of sarcasm to this. This is what they've been saying. And so he lets them hear what they want to hear from him. So the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied uh, with my flesh? Why do you keep attacking me like a wild animal? And then out of this, he's just absolutely rock bottom at this point. And then uh, he rises up so magnificently uh, spiritually here, this beautiful, beautiful expression of his faith in God that happens in verse 23. Oh, that my words were written, he said, and that they were inscribed in a book and that they were engraved on a rock with the iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. One of the things that, and it, it, that is amazing about this kind of um, magnificent burst of faith on the part of Job is that he is so low 
emotionally and spiritually, mentally, physically, in every kind of way. He's so low at this particular point, and yet one of these great gems of the entire Old Testament comes flying out of his mouth. And we say, well, what in the world do we ascribe that to? I'll tell you what I ascribe it to, the grace of God in his life. And although God had allowed Satan to attack Job very, very broadly, God gave Satan a lot of room to attack Job on, but he still set perimeters upon that attack. And he made sure that Job's faith would not fail if it would not become a casualty of Satan's attacks. Again, it reminds us of Peter when Peter, on the night before the crucifixion, and he's not going to deny Jesus and all of these things, and Jesus said to Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And, and, and Jesus gave permission for that to happen. But Jesus said, I've prayed for you. The attack's going to be a big attack, but I've set perimeters on the attack. I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And, and that attack was very intense, very, very broad. But the one thing that Satan could not touch, God did not allow it to touch, was to touch Peter's faith. You know, I, I really do believe that there are successful failures in the Christian life. And I do believe that there are times where God even has to allow room for us uh, to fail and to disappoint uh, ourselves. You look at Peter here with this great, though they all deny you, I will not deny you, and this great self-confidence that he had and this sense of superiority even over other Christians and all. And then when, when this particular thing hits him and he sees how weak he is apart from God, that he's no greater than any other man. All of these things, he was sifted as wheat. The sifting of wheat is to break the chaff, uh, the outer useless kind of crust of the, of the chaff, to break it away from the wheat, to separate what is useless from what is useful. And that great trial in Peter's life separated him from his pride, his arrogance, and his, his sense of superiority. And he basically became, became a new man after that. And then you add the baptism of the Holy Spirit to all of that. And, and so sometimes the Lord will allow that something to happen in our lives. But there's always those perimeters that he places on it. Here's God's promise to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you such as common demand. That really helps me, doesn't it help you when you're, when you're being tempted or tested and to realize, okay, I'm not the goofball. I'm not the crazy person or the strange person. Everybody goes through trials like I'm going through. And there's, there's something about a little bit of company in the misery that is actually helpful. But then Paul wrote and he said, But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In other words, God will always give us a way of escape from any trial that we find ourselves in, or he will give us the grace we need to victoriously endure that particular trial. He's got grace in both directions. It just depends on which one he, he wants to, to use. And so uh, God 
in terms of Job here, Job didn't have a way of escape. Not yet. He will. That's coming. All trials end at some particular point. And so God was giving him the grace that he needed. There's no way of escape. So God was giving him the grace that he needed so that his faith would not fail. So we look and say, where is God in all of this? God isn't talking. But that doesn't mean God isn't working. God can do a lot of things a lot of different ways in a situation, even when we are all we're getting from him on the talking side of things is, is silence at the moment. And so God is behind this great outburst of faith. And when he declares in verse 25, my Redeemer lives, he's basically saying that God is, is going to vindicate my claim to uh, innocence. I may die as a result of this trial, but God who knows the truth will never die, and he is going to vindicate me in all of this. Justice is going to prevail. When he says that God will stand on the earth there in verse 25, Job knew that in the end God would stand on the earth, and like a witness for the a defendant in a court trial, that he would testify ultimately uh, to Job's innocence, that, that God will do this personally. Everyone's going to hear of my innocence from no less than God himself. And then if I do die, he said in verse 26 and 27, I know that I will see God. And what he's saying is, I'm right with God. I'm right with God. You're talking about the end of the wicked, and they really didn't get into the aspect of heaven and hell. But he's saying, if I die in these circumstances, I'm not going to hell. I'm not a man who lacks a relationship with God. I have a relationship with God. If I die in the middle of this trial, I want you to know that where you will see me next is in heaven itself. I will be with God. That's where I'm uh, going. I'm not going to judgment as all of your accusations in infer. And so after, if my skin is destroyed, he's talking about his body rotting and, and dead. And then in verse 27, he says, Whom I uh, shall see for myself, speaking of God, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And the word heart there is kidneys. You probably like heart better than kidneys. How my kidneys yearn within me. Do we need to take a break or what? So but the, the words that were used, kidneys or heart, it means the innermost being. And so Job is saying, the deepest part of me, my innermost being, is just wiped out of the thought of one day seeing God, and I know that I'm going to see God. And he's communicating, this is not the hope of a hypocrite or a secret sinner. I have the hope and the confidence of a man who knows that he is right with God. And then he turns things around on them in verse 28, and he declares uh, to them a warning for persecuting him. He says, if you should say, how shall we persecute him since the root of the matter is found in me? Be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know that there is a judgment. And he's telling them, you ought to be, you are the ones that should be afraid 
of judgment from God in the light of what it is that you are accusing an innocent man of. Verse 20. Chapter 20. So it's, you'll, okay, don't worry. That's all. Just be at peace. Then Zophar, the uh, Naamanite, he answered and he said, so he, he speaks now, and it's his final speech. We're glad for that when anybody gets done with all of this. And so he's going to describe it once again, what the end of the wicked looks like. And again, it looks very much like Job's circumstances. Job, what's happened to you only happens to wicked people. And so he said, therefore, my anxious thoughts make me answer. I wanted to keep silent, Job, but you keep provoking me with what you say because of the turmoil within me. I've heard the rebuke that reproaches me and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. And so Job's words have really offended this man's pride. And so he is very, very upset with them and and he's so infuriated, he's going to let Job have it with both barrels verbally, so to speak. Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short? And so this is what he's going to talk about, the wicked, that their triumph is short, and that the joy of the hypocrite is just for a moment, Though his haughtiness mounts to the heavens, accusing Job of being haughty, and his head reaches to the clouds, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. And so this takes a new low in the discussion. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly by the wicked man will like a dream and not be found. So you ever wake up in the morning and you just had some kind of vivid, amazing dream and you think to yourself, I'll never forget that dream and halfway through your first cup of coffee, you can't remember that dream. To save your life, someone would offer you $5 million to remember your dream. You couldn't remember it. And you think, man, what's happening to me? It's as old as the book of Job. This has been going around a long time. You're okay. Don't call the doctor. We've been forgetting dreams for a long, long time. But that's what he's going to say. You're going to, your life is going to be like a dream that nobody can recall. And yes, he will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place behold him any more. His children will seek the favor of the poor. They will, his children will become so poor that they will beg from the poor. And his hands will restore his wealth. His bones are, uh, are full of his youthful vigor, but will lie down with him in the dust. He will die young and full of health. Though evil is sweet in his mouth and he hides it under his tongue, though he spares it and does not forsake it, but he keeps it in his mouth, yet his food in his stomach shall turn sour, it becomes cobra venom within him. And so I don't know if they have anything for cobra venom. If you have that Italian meal I was talking about, you got to take one of those tablets to be able to enjoy it. Nope. Don't ever order cobra venom on the menu. So, apparently, so the idea is 
concerning the wicked is that they will taste of life, but they'll never really enjoy it. There's always an angle to it that ruins things from really being enjoyed by them. Now, that is true, but it isn't true of Job because Job was not wicked. And so he says he's, the wicked swallows up riches and he vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue will slay him. He will not see the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and cream. He will restore that for which he labored and will not swallow it down. For from the proceeds of business, he will get no enjoyment. He will experience a lot of life, but he will never ever truly enjoy life. That is true about the wicked, but again, not true of Job. For he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. He has violently seized a house which he did not build because he knows no quietness in his heart. Now, he's going to talk about the wicked have a terrifying end to their uh, uh, difficult life. He says, because he knows no quietness in his heart, the wicked will never know peace. And really, they don't. That's the truth about that. Uh, He will not save anything he desires. He'll lose everything ultimately. That's also true. Uh, Maybe at death, but it's true. Nothing is left for him to eat. Therefore, his well-being will not last. In his self-sufficiency, he will be in distress. Every hand of misery will come against him. When he is about to fill his stomach, God will cast on him the fury of his wrath, and it will rain on him while he is eating, and and he will flee from the iron weapon. A bronze bow will pierce him through. It is drawn and comes out of the body. Yes, the glittering point comes out of his gall. Terrors come upon him. Total darkness is reserved for his treasures. The unfanned fire will consume... You say it, will consume him. It shall go ill with him who is left in his tent. In other words, his family and dependents will also um, face difficulty. The heavens will reveal his iniquity. The earth will rise up against him. Creation even will rise up against uh, the wicked and show the wickedness of the wicked. That is true as well. The increase of his house will depart and his goods will flow away in the day of his wrath. That is God's wrath. This is the portion from God for the wicked man, the heritage appointed to him by God. In other words, God will make sure that this is the end of the wicked. Well, this is a fabulous thing that he's saying on many levels. I like, you could preach a sermon on any one of really half a dozen verses in this passage. Um, all of it would be true. The problem is he is applying it to a man who is not wicked. So it has no application to Job, and the implication is that he is wicked. So it's not just empty verbiage that's being spoken. It's worse than that. Um, It is accusing Job of something that isn't true. Well, we'll stop there tonight, and we'll pick it up in chapter 21. I am trying to take about five chapters at a time. We've got about... uh, Two more uh, Sundays before we'll get through this particular section, Lord willing, of this back and forth. And then a young man uh, comes up on the scene and he's got some uh, things that he wants to say. And then thankfully, can you say thankfully? Thankfully, God comes on the scene in this book and uh, ties up this 
terrible mess in a magnificent way with lessons that are absolutely well worth the wait. Let's stand together and let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the time that we got to spend in it tonight. And, Lord, we thank you for the joy and the privilege that is ours to be a part of the body of Christ, to be able to enjoy this time of worship and study with other people that know you and love you, Lord, on our left and on our right and before us and behind us. We thank you for their lives. We thank you for their love for you, Lord. We ask for your richest blessing upon each of their lives and all the things that they are facing in their walk with you. Bless them, Lord. Exceed every expectation that they have for the coming week, we pray. Thank you, Lord, for being our God. And we thank you, Lord, for the expectation that is in each of our hearts for the coming week. Fellowship with you and then to watch your plan for our lives unfold. Thank you for this Christian life. And thank you for Jesus, Lord, who paid the price to make it available to us. Thank you for saving us. We thank you for our salvation tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.